Welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you interviews with people from across the globe who are changing the face of sexual health for the better. This is the place to hear about new approaches and initiatives in sexual health, best practice, challenges, and to meet some of the people who are driving change from around the world. My name is Nick Mallon, and I administer the SDI International Exchange, or STICS. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and please subscribe to receive future episodes. For today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Austin. Tim is a technology expert who set up PreventEx, who are the European leader in SDI remote testing. The company predominantly works in the UK and administers a number of public programs, including Sexual Health London, which is the world's largest publicly funded remote testing program. So hello, Tim, lovely to see you today. How are you? Hi, Nick. I'm great, thanks. Um, and, and thanks for having me on the, the podcast. It's really interesting and excited to be here. So, so you've been in the sexual health field for, for a long time. You know, fair to say you're the daddy of remote STI testing. You launched your first program in 2008. Is, is that correct? Yes. So I, I'm not sure I claim the daddy old title. Um, I mean, remote testing was certainly around when we entered the market, but a, a lot's changed. And I think we've helped drive some of that innovation, especially leveraging technology in, in the remote testing. Yeah. So, so how did you get into remote SDI testing, Tim? Well, it, uh, it's a long story. Um, my background isn't um, in healthcare. Um, I'm software engineering and on, online kind of technology. Um, and that was the basis, really, of the business we founded. We set out uh, with a pretty broad view to leveraging technology in, in healthcare. And really, it was my co-founder, Neil, who was the brains behind that vision. And it was him who identified the opportunity in, in sexual health remote testing. One thing I'd like to clarify first, we talk about self-sampling in the UK, whereas I know in the US they talk far more about remote or, or home testing. Are we talking about the same thing? So, so I think some of those terms can get used in, interchangeably, but they, they do a different meaning. So uh, self-sampling literally means collecting your own sample. Um, and of course, that that is part of remote testing or home testing. Um, but also you can go in a clinic and collect your own sample. So in itself, that's that's not what we're talking about here. Um, home testing is where users are not just collecting their own sample, but actually carrying out the test at home. So think lateral flow tests, pregnancy tests, those kind of tests where you would get instant results. Remote testing or postal testing is where someone collects their own sample, but then sends it back to a laboratory for analysis. So that's what we do at Preventex. Um, this means you can offer a quite a, a wide range of highly accurate, C-marked, validated tests. Um, the same the same test you would be using for uh, used in a clinical setting. And while some of the instant kind of home tests can be quite accurate, the pregnancy tests are a really good example of a test that it's essentially as accurate as a as a laboratory test, really, a pregnancy test strip. But for STI-based tests, um, particularly for bacterial infections, that there are lateral flow versions of them, but they're not nearly as accurate as if you send a sample back to a lab. And and if the sensitivity is lower, you're effectively increasing the window period, so you wouldn't pick up an infection as soon. So I think that's that's the, the difference. Um, and and what I think what we do and what we're talking about is the remote or postal testing side of things. Thank you for, for clarifying that, Tim. So we're really talking about laboratory um, administered tests compared to point of care testing. So so thank you yeah. for clarifying. Do you want to give me a, a 
brief overview of, of Preventex. I know we picked it up in the introduction, but but just from your perspective. Sure. So Preventex is a health, health tech business, and we have a core focus on uh, remote or self-sample remote testing. And t- to date, our that's almost exclusively been in the around sexual health screening. Um, but but in reality, any test that can be done on self-collected samples and that kind of mail back to a laboratory, that's all interesting to us. And I think there are continual advances in that space um, with with new tests, new sampling, um, the, the self-sampling options, and tests can be done smaller volumes. So that's what Preventex is about. Um, we launched our first service back in 2008, so that was freetest.me, and that enabled people in participating areas of the UK to order a free chlamydia test. Um, there was a push at the time to get more young people, particularly screening for chlamydia. Um, so that was an online process where, where we shipped out the kits. Um, the, the patient collected the sample, went back to the laboratory, and results were managed by local clinical partners. And since then, we've, we've set up our own laboratory, launched a number of services, and widened testing out to include self-sampling of, of more infections, so blood-borne viruses such as HIV and hepatitis, if there's things like that. So, so that's what we do um, in a nutshell. So I can imagine, Tim, the UK in, in 2008 was a very different place to, to where it is today. What, what was the situation and the attitudes regarding remote testing at that time? You know, was anybody else doing it? So back in 2008, the National Committee Screening Programme, the NCSP, uh, had rolled out across England uh, with a, a clear objective to increase committee screening uptake in 16 to 24s and, and target those who aren't otherwise getting tested, so those not attending clinic. And there was some postal testing being done as part of that. Um, and that was mainly done in local venues. So it was self-sampling in that patients were collecting samples, but it was not remote. Well, it was remote, but not postal. It wasn't at home. It was in GPs, pharmacies, outreach programs, that kind of thing. Um, there was a little bit of postal testing being done as part of that, but the it was a bit of a mess, to be frank. I think that the program was divided up into 152 separate, essentially autonomous um, services, and they, they all set up their own thing. They had their own names, their logos, websites. It wasn't really joined up, and I think our vision was to set up a kind of central national portal where people could access a postal test kit. So that's what we set about doing. There was some online postal testing we offered that time, but it was, it was really quite basic. So uh, online web form, usually not secure, um, user type in their details, and that would get emailed. And then a nurse in the local service would be handwriting address labels and, you know, putting a postal stamp on it. And it was that, you know, you get the picture, it was quite simple. So our vision was to use technology to basically create a national online portal where people could access a a committee screening at the time, uh, test kit, and that's what we set out to build. Thanks, Tim. And we'll come back to the technology, which is a, a fascinating side of the the remote testing later but just going back to what you said you mentioned that there were many disparate programs and you and Preventex built a national program sometimes um, people can be very parochial did you did you get a lot of barriers or challenges when launching your programs tell me about those 
So I think what's interesting is in, in the chlamydia screening space, remote testing was reasonably accepted because of the that whole service uh, program had been established around self-sampling. So I think from the kind of the obvious challenges you would think around um, acceptability, accuracy, validation, those were less of a problem. And being able to access more people through on, online channels, that was seen as a bit of a no-brainer. So, so on that side of things, it was, you know, it was reasonably easy sell. Um, the you think the main challenge we had was kind of more political and, and around the funding of the service. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, that there were 152 uh, primary care trusts and each of those administered their local um, screening service. And that's where the funding was held at that level. So we had to approach 152 organizations to, to try and see if they wanted to uh, work with us to deliver the online testing. And I think one of the barriers that really was a problem back when we started was the laboratory pathology block contracts. So this is where an entire health service in a certain region or trust, um, they will bundle all their pathology up. So that would be like the biochemistry, molecular, both emergency and routine, cross-matching blood for A&E, all, all that bundled up into one massive pathology um, and laboratory contract, uh, millions of pounds. Um, and if we come along and say, well, we, we can do a thousand, you know, chlamydia or STI tests, that's fine. And we will have to charge for that, but it wouldn't get deducted from their block contract. And what's worse is those block contracts were often priced based on the estimates of the number of tests they think they would do, which they would then struggle to meet. And we'd come along and say, well, we can help you meet these targets and deliver these extra thousand tests, but they would see that they were double paying for it. So so I think that was one of the barriers that we had. Um, th- there were also some odd commercial models in play, particularly with the private labs at that time. So uh, some would do the sampling kits for free and then make the money up on lab test and others would be bundling all the cost of lab testing into the price of the kind of box with the sample tubes in which didn't make sense either if they didn't get returns so we pioneered a split cost per kit and cost per test model which is it seems kind of really obvious but that wasn't the case and that's now quite ubiquitous across the market so they were the main things we did have some challenges where i yeah where where customers didn't really understand what we're offering and and how um it could work for them i remember an example we we met with a potential customer um and we've been discussing some research we've done on facebook and we were asked if we could provide any real evidence that 16 to 24 year olds use the internet um which was we were slightly dumbfounded by that one i can imagine tim and and have those barriers disappeared today towards remote testing i mean i'm i'm thinking of the covid pandemic and the way that digital health has really um grasped people's imagination and and how high take up has been or or do you still find that you have some skeptics in terms of remote testing so I think the the barriers I mentioned there, so the lab block contracts is is that's largely less of a problem these days. Um, I, I think and and the chlamydia screening services that we worked with at the beginning have eventually kind of merged into the existing sexual health services, and that's provided an opportunity actually to widen out the scope of our testing. So that's that's been helpful. Um, but but I beyond beyond just chlamydia screening that we were originally doing. So. But I think some of the challenge now comes from from that. And I think clinicians sometimes feel that they're losing patients to an online service. Um, and I, I understand that. There are certainly cohorts of patients that benefit from accessing physical services. And we never claim that online or remote sampling is a, is a panacea that's going to solve all sexual health. And we, we can close all the clinics and do it all online. Um, we're actually there to support those services. So... Um, and, and I think a majority of patients who are looking for checkup or are asymptomatic and don't really need to attend a clinic, they're the users that we're really targeting for online. Um, and, and actually, on, on those that have greater needs, it's probably fair to say that 
the consultations that we develop for the online process are are quite thorough. I mean, our objective is for those journeys to be as clinically robust as them attending in person and having that that triage and consultation. And I think some of the data shows that users actually answer just as honestly online, if not more so than than when they're in one to one with the with the health advisor. So. I think that there's a balance uh, between these services. And I think those the clinicians that understand how services work and, and they start to realize that actually it's it's not a threat, it is an enabler for them to deliver a world-class online front door, but also, you know, retain access to those patients while freeing up some of their time to to manage those diagnosed through the online services, but also the more complex cases. Thanks, Tim. And I love the expression front door, which I think sums everything up. It's a front door into online services or into clinical services, which really highlights the the integration. That's right. And, and I think that that's been um, the digital front door has been a, a key thing during the pandemic when a lot of physical services closed their literal uh, front doors. That drove a lot of users either because they couldn't access their services or, or those services intentionally passing people and referring them to the online services. So the, online has become a kind of the the front door, if you will. And 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 I think that's probably here to stay to some extent. So, so Tim, is it fair to say that the services that are offered by Preventex delivered for the public health service are free to the individual accessing those services? That's right, Nick. So our services are, are free to the user. Um, that's because public health is funded at a national level. Um, statutory responsibility for sexual health actually falls to local government, not the National Health Service, and they fund services in their regions. So where those are, where we're then commission those areas, we can offer those tests free um, to to patients, and that's 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 the way the funding model works. And and Tim, what percentage then of STI testing is carried out remotely in the UK? So I think it's quite hard to pin pin that data down. Um, so there's there's nationally reported data sets. Um, they are collated by by Public Health England. They're, they're often quite delayed, uh, and the pandemic hasn't helped with that data. I expect it to be in excess of thirty percent, um, possibly higher, given the pandemic. So when we started in two thousand eight, we we were pushing to see around ten percent of just the sixteen twenty four cohort being uh, tested remotely. Um, we're now targeting 30% of all ages and well over that for some of our services that include symptomatic users. Uh, so the most recent data I looked it up um, was from 2019 and that showed of that of all sexual health service attendances in England, 12.5% were via via Preventex's online services. But I expect that's now out of date. Those, those figures will be higher and that's just our figures as well. So it's growing, definitely growing, growing amount. So how many tests do Preventex carry out per year, Tim? So in the laboratory uh, in the last 12 months, uh, we've carried out over 3 million tests uh, on around 700,000 uh, kits that have been returned from, from patients. Wow. And, and what sort of positivity rates do you get? It varies um, around or if not over 8% of users testing with us will receive a positive result for one or more of the tests they're having done. So uh, most of those diagnoses are for chlamydia, um, although some other infections such as syphilis are actually increasing. So you mentioned chlamydia and syphilis. What, what are the other STIs that you test for? So we carry a range of tests, the, the most common ones being chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV and syphilis. Uh, we're increasingly doing hepatitis B and C screening also on bloods. And we're bringing on new tests such as uh, trichomonas and uh, microplasma genitalium. Um, and we're looking at, at new tests all the time that we can, we can onboard. For those who aren't familiar with remote testing, 
Do you want to talk me through the process? Sure. So uh, we, we operate a few different models across our service, uh, but to keep things simple, I'll, I'll run through um, the Sexual Health London SHL service that you mentioned earlier. So users arrive at that service at uh, www.shl.uk uh, through a couple of routes. So they'll either find it directly by searching perhaps online um, or they'll be directed from clinic uh, because the way that's set up is the physical clinics across London have their own EARL. So if you're a Dean Street clinic, may have a post drop that would say deanstreet.shl.uk. So that helps us know where users are coming from, and that actually can potentially um, they can potentially collect a kit if they're in in a physical venue rather than have one posted. Uh, so the user then goes online. They can register. Um, they need to register um, to use the service. Uh, some of our services don't require this, but the the newer services it helps if they create a profile. Um, they then go through a clinical uh, consultation. We call it a triage process, and that can that'll determine uh, risk. Uh, so what what kits they need, um, what samples uh, and tests, and also provide other things like signposting. Then at the end of that process, they can order a kit. So there's a button that orders the kit. We post that out from our our dispatch operation in Sheffield. Um, the kit received be received by the patient. They collect the samples. The instructions are inside. Everything on how to do that. Um, they then post that back just in a post box. It's free post track, track returned back to our laboratory where we carry out the testing. Um, and the tests that we do at the laboratory are based on what the original consultation uh, recommended. Uh, they can then log on to access results. Um, so in most cases, uh, negative results or anything that doesn't require any further follow-up, they, they can just log on and view that on their profile results where maybe there's a, a reactive test for a blood infection or something, they will be handled by a health advisor making a phone call. So what typically happens when, when somebody tests positive? This can vary a little uh, based on customer requirements because our platform is quite flexible. Uh, in most cases, negative results are delivered directly to the patient. So either by text message or they, they log into their profile and they'll have a results record. Um, positive results for bacterial infections. Um, in some services, such as in London, uh, they can actually order treatment. So if they test positive for chlamydia and they're not a, they're, they're kind of a, a non-complex case, uh, they can just order postal treatment, which gets posted out. Um, we work with a partner pharmacy that does that. Um, obviously, anything more severe um, or, or, or a high risk or, or potentially any any cases where they need a, a further intervention. So they would be handled by a health advisor that would phone them and, and give those re results directly. So, so for example, a, a reactive blood result. So, so Tim, you've got kit return rates of 80% at Preventex, which is absolutely incredible when compared to other global programs. What's your secret? Kit return rates are one of a number of KPI metrics that we look at. It's certainly one of the ones that gets a lot of focus. Uh, that's, I think, for two reasons. Uh, kits that don't get used are both waste financially, but also environmentally. And um, if you've gone to the effort of getting a kit to someone, they don't return it, um, you know, they've not used the service and that's not a good outcome. So we've always seen really consistent return rates going back 12, 13 years. Um, and actually, we've improved those with some of our newer services um, from kind of 70 to 80% and and over Um and that's in contrast to a lot of other services that have seen quite poor return rates. I think we've definitely no services see 40% or lower uh, kit, kits returned. Without giving away the secret sauce, <laughs> it's achieved through a kind of mix of careful design and a balance between making kits too easy to access versus too much friction. Um, and, and then kind of just 
ongoing innovation that we've put into our kits and the, the processes. As an example, um, we identified back when we were doing the uh, 16 to 24 chlamydia screening, the lot of people in that age group, particularly, they don't know where the nearest post box is. So all our kits have a free post. You can just post them in a post box when you collect your, your sample, but they wouldn't know where the post box was because who sends who sends letters these days? Um, so we added a small map onto that form that shows them where their local post box is. And, you know, these little incremental improvements to, to the service can help improve those return rates. And we can try and A-B test some of them, but I, I think sometimes they're quite small incremental improvements, so that, that can be challenging. One thing that's worth adding as well is that return rates are often not calculated correctly, and that can be frustrating for us as well with competing services sometimes um, claiming to get very high return rates when they're not, and and when you look a little closer, the, the numbers don't seem right. And for example, if you dispatch a, a hundred kits in June and you receive ninety kits into your lab in June. Uh, your return rate is not 90% because you could have dispatched 200 kits in May and actually you're seeing 50% return rate. So our part of our technology platform, it tracks every kit individually. So we know exactly which kits have and haven't been returned, how long they've been out, when they were ordered, when they were dispatched. So we can look at a month, any month in the last 13 years. So see those 100 kits were ordered in June 2009 and the exact number of those 100 that have come back. So it's important to calculate return rates correctly as well. Thank you very much, Tim. That's a fascinating insight. For remote testing, do all populations use it or are there specific populations that stand out more than others? I believe it tends to be consistent with other channels such as in clinics. Um, in, in the early days of the chlamydia screening service, we, we speak to urban services who'd say they, they couldn't understand um, why they want postal testing because surely it's better in rural rural communities and, you know, it wouldn't work in big cities. And then you, you'd go to meet a rural service and they'd say the exact opposite, convinced that it's only for, you know, people in cities who have no time and uh, have mobile phones and things. So, um, but of course, it's no surprise that actually as we roll out these services, it works for everyone. Um, I think when when clinics closed um, in the pandemic, that's that's pushed a lot of people online, and there, there was a bit of a concern that that might be detrimental to some cohorts. Who I mean, particularly certain ethnic minorities that have traditionally been quite challenging for sexual services to to attract um, to get tested. And but data that we've we've seen through the services over that time, I think, looks promising. It's, it's showing that actually some of the the cohorts that we were were worried might be less likely to access online services actually are. So that that's that's helpful. We, we're continually uh, evolving the service and we, we look at data on how we can improve um, the kind of quality of access uh, and um, and targeting those who we feel should be accessing services but maybe aren't and try and work out why. So it's, it's always uh, something we're, we're, we're trying to work on. So how do you integrate with physical clinics? So uh, we're not a clinical provider ourselves. I think we're, we're always quite clear about that, certainly at the moment. Um, we deliver the technology, logistics, pathology services to enable um, clinical services to, to deliver the remote testing. So we tend to rely on local health providers to manage patients, um, follow-up treatment. Um, and we provide them with an online a cloud-based portal effectively where they can log in, they can see all their results, manage their patients. And and most of the management, um, certainly for those with negative results or where there's no kind of safeguarding flags or anything like that, can all be handled automatically by text message or users logging in to view results. So that actually helps those local services by freeing up their time um, to deal only with those who are already diagnosed or their more complex cases or those that require additional um, intervention. While our work is mainly on the technical side, it's important that that's underpinned by 
clinical expertise. So, um, for example, the online consultations um, that determine what kit, signposting, safeguarding is, is offered, that's de- developed in collaboration with those clinicians. So, um, and it's not one fixed um, triage nationally. Uh, they, they're customized at local level by local clinicians for local populations. So they're, they're really involved in, in the, how those services are delivered. How were you impacted by the COVID pandemic, Tim? So when the first lockdown started, um, we've had a quiet couple of weeks or quite quieter. Um, but actually, as the physical clinic started to close, uh, that drove a lot of activity online, um, which you know has been great for the uptake of, of remote testing. And I, I expect um, some of that behavioural change is, is here to stay. And I, I think that's for two reasons. Um, people who have, have tried the online service now, who maybe wouldn't have considered it before, actually may find that they prefer that convenience and the simplicity of, of that. But also, I think you know that there's for some time, people are going to be slightly averse or resistant to visiting physical services if they can avoid it so particularly if they're asymptomatic or looking for a checkup um, and also we've had a massive uh, testing program for COVID-19 across across the UK and and I think that's kind of opened people's eyes to doing remote testing where you kind of get the kit in, in the post and collect your sample and send it off so these are all good things that will help reinforce the the, the postal testing really I think. Thanks Tim one of the very small positives of COVID is, is that growth in digital health and, and remote testing. Mm-hmm. And now that lockdown restrictions in the UK uh, are starting to ease, do you expect to see a, a surge in STI cases? Oh, I, th- I think it's hard to tell. I, you'd think the um, lockdowns would have would have curbed some of the spread of STIs, but I'm not sure that's what we saw in the data. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you could revisit it on a, on a later episode, perhaps, Nick. Thanks very much, Tim. Now, you mentioned the triage, and I'm fascinated by that. Tell me more about what underpins good triage. So, so what areas do you signpost, and, and what is the technology that underpins that triage? So the triage is a, it's a set of questions we ask someone um, before we, we offer them a, a kit, if, if we offer them a kit, to be fair. Um, and we've had some level of this uh, kind of questionnaire type process from, from day one with our, our early services. But with the move of more users from clinic to online services, it's become really important that that process is clinically robust and it reflects the kind of process that they would have in a clinic. So that similar questions and risk assessments. So it's a set of questions and then each question they're asked can, can cause certain actions in the system. So that could be adding or removing tests. For example, if a risk's identified for hepatitis B, then we can add that test. Or if they say yes, that they've been previously diagnosed with HIV, we could remove that test. Um, then it can also alter the samples um, that are included. So certain users will get a rectal swab, others won't. Um, questions can also trigger signposting to be displayed at the end of the process uh, for services, perhaps uh, drug and alcohol support. Um, and and more severe um, questions that are responded to that indicate things such as sexual assault, they would be flagged for a health advisor to to phone the patient and, and discuss that with them. That's the triage that makes up the the process. And then at the end of that, they'll I mean, in some cases they won't be offered a kit; they'll be referred to clinic. Um, uh, but in, in most cases, they're they're then offered the the kit that's been recommended, which they can then order. And and tell me about your lab, the size, the number of staff you've got, and. I, I believe you're 100% specialised in, in STI testing with, within your lab. Is that correct? 
That's right. So yeah, we absolutely at the moment we we only do STI testing. We're we're always looking at, at other opportunities, but we don't want to get distracted, and and our focus is um, sexual health. Um, so yeah, we we set the lab uh, back up in in 2011. We decided that we'd we'd move lab testing in house. Uh, we previously subcontracted it to a large private lab, and w- while there was some cost saving kind of incentive for that, the actual main driver was the operationally you know was to be able to deliver more traceability and improve the quality of the service so yeah we've recently doubled uh, the size of the lab uh, we, we now cover about seven and a half thousand square foot and operate with around 40 staff um the new lab enables us to install uh, four uh, roche 8800 platforms for molecular testing and at least two or three uh, roche uh, 801 uh, modules which do the serology testing um, on blood samples so it provides a real good step up capacity and we like to maintain a good good headroom on that so in a nutshell what are the key components of a successful remote testing program for you well i'm biased i'd say the technology that underpins um, all the pathways the digital aspect um I think in, in the UK, we um, have a lot of remote testing initiatives run at local level, and they, they never seem to scale well. Um, you know, for example, I think I mentioned earlier, handwriting address labels, that sort of thing, manually booking samples into, into lab by typing up the data. So we set out to change that, and I think that's been one of the key um, key keys to the success and scalability of what we do. Um, aside from technology, I think it's it's important to consider the user and think about what what works. Um, and, and I think sometimes that solution to that scene is involving the user in the design, uh, focus groups, and and f- feedback. And and I think that can be beneficial. But I spend a lot of time just really trying to work out what I think the best way of doing things are and running with it. And actually, you can always evolve things and change them over time as that feedback comes in. So I think not let that get in the way of just getting a service running um, is helpful. So, so Tim, technology is something that's permeated right across your responses and something core to you and your background. I, I don't know if engagement is the right word, but how do you get people to your portal? So I think from the early days, we had a lot of traction with online, um, organic search engine, that kind of thing. So I I think that's really helped us access people who are actively searching for sexual health testing Um, because we're one of the early movers in the market. I think, you know, if you search that, we always came quite high up. In in time, that's changed. And I think a lot of people accessing our services now are actually referred from local providers. So the websites of sexual health clinics. And what they'll do is put links on their websites, perhaps on the page, where they display opening times or the address of the clinic and say, you know, you, you, you can come to clinic, but actually if you're asymptomatic, you might be able to get a, a free postal test here. Um, and, and that's where a lot of people come from. And in London, I think it's one step further in that, you know, if you walk into a clinic, you'll actually be directed online first. If, if you're asymptomatic or, or don't have more complex needs, they'll just say, you know, you, you can go on the website and get a free test. You can pick it up here, actually, so they don't have to be posted. So they're the ways that we get people um, kind of through that front door. Great. And as somebody who's seen the SHUK and the Sexual Health London portal, I, I do urge people to go and take a look. Um, because the technology is incredibly simple, clear, and, and intuitive. So that's the, the user interface, Tim. Tell me a bit more about the back office integration with the clinicians and other clinical and, and pharmaceutical partners that you work with. Sure. So I think from the clinical point of view, we, we have um, a cloud-based uh, patient kind of management system that allows the health advisors to 
view incoming results, uh, see which are flagged up, and, and carry out any of the onward care that's required. We have integrations, uh, electronic integrations with other uh, providers of services, such as you mentioned pharmacy. So where we do the uh, postal treatment, that all goes through those integrations as well. Uh, but but most of our interface is effectively with the clinicians who manage patient results. How do you manage integration with third-party providers? You know, as well as the clinical and user interfaces, who else do you typically have to interface with? So I think, um, as, as I mentioned, we have our own, own platform, but actually a lot of our customers also run their own local EPR, electronic patient record systems um, in the clinics. And we're often asked to integrate with these. And, and, and actually, we can relatively easily provide a data feed into those third-party platforms. And the issue we have is, I think, a lot of the granularity of the data that we hold, because we're so uh, specific to the self-sampling and the, the remote testing that sometimes we'll have all sorts of extra data, such as when kits were ordered, where they've been collected from, if it's picked up in a clinic, who processed it, who processed it in the lab, sub-results for fifth-generation HIV assays. So there's, there's a lot of data that we would hold, and sometimes that doesn't have a place in the in the kind of existing uh, EPR systems in in clinics, so that can be that can be challenging. Um, and actually, because of that, I think a lot of our customers just use our platform directly to manage the results, which which means we don't usually interface with that many third parties. But it's not because we can't. I mean, we're, we're always happy to. And and as I say, we, there were other third parties such as the um, pharmacy providers that we need to interface with to deploy those services. So so Tim, thanks. Um, what sort of innovations are you working on at Preventex? What are the sexual health services of the future going to look like? Well, we're investing in a few developments. Um, some of them are kind of iterations of our platform. So a new clinical portal for result management. Um, and and that in itself um, doesn't sound like a groundbreaking thing, but actually we can bring in um, improvements to simplify tasks and workflows for services that manage a lot of results. So actually that helps free up a bit of clinician time um, and it should look a bit smarter than the platform I built back in 2013. Um, we, we also plan to refresh the user-facing portals as well. But on top of that, we, we're looking at new products and services um, that are kind of complementary to the sexual health testing we do. So electronic part notification, um, appointment referral, uh, improved pathway for users of PrEP. Um, so on a HIV prevention medication and and they need to undertake regular testing. So we're looking at how we can support them. Um, and yeah, those kind of things. Uh, we're always we're always looking at new 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 things and ways to improve the services. And what are the future plans for Preventex? So I think it's more of the same. Um, you know, we, we're there's a lot of um, services around the country here are still using in-house DIY services, and I think we can help them to operate more efficiently and achieve better outcomes. So that's a priority for us. Um, but outside of this, uh, we, we're growing our private testing services. So www.test.me um that brand and while that currently has a focus on sexual health we're planning to launch new services hpv screening and another adjacent um testing um and of course we're we're expanding internationally nick and um having made a couple of european acquisitions we're always looking at the opportunities um to leverage our technology in in new markets that's great thank you tim and just finally what do you see as the future of remote testing so I think remote testing is definitely here to stay and it's growing. Um, the pandemic has accelerated the, the whole remote testing space. Uh, as I said earlier, I think people are, particularly with the COVID testing schemes, are very aware of digital healthcare and, and that's that's just going to grow um, hugely. Um, and I think the range of tests that can be carried out on self-sampled, self-collected samples 
that will only continue to grow as technology advances. So new tests that can be done on smaller sample volumes or higher quality tests, um, liquid biopsy tests for cancer. There's there's a lot of development there. Um, it's, it's some of it's years away, but you know it will it'll come come over the horizon. So Tim, just to to end the podcast in over 13 years of remote testing, what would you say the main lessons that you've learned? So my 13 years in remote testing have also been my 13 years growing a business. And, and I think a lot of those lessons have probably spanned those journeys. Um, I think one of the lessons I've learned is it's it's important to work well with clinicians. And, you know, I, I've designed a lot of the processes for our remote testing services and, and developed all technology, but my background is not medical or clinical at all. Um, and it's really important um, to make sure that that's represented. So uh, equally, clinicians are aren't process engineers or designers and 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 it's important to make sure what's being developed delivers to clinical requirements while not letting it be the sole function of the design so I, I think the, the point i'm making is that just that collaboration is really important and and i think that's a key to actually the success of anything that that kind of mixes technology and, and healthcare so tim thanks so much for your time it's been a fascinating insight into remote testing if people want to get in touch to ask questions or to find out more about your international validation project. Are you happy for people to email you? Yes, that's fine, Nick. Um, I'm happy to hear from anyone. My email address is tim at preventex.com. That's great. And that's preventex as in prevent and just the letter X at the end. That's correct. So Tim, thank you very much for your time today. Really do appreciate it. And it provided a fascinating insight into remote uh, SDI testing. You're welcome, Nick. And thanks for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed chatting today. Thank you very much for listening to the Sticks and Stones podcast today. And I very much hope you enjoyed the chat. In our next episode, I'll be speaking to Harriet Langanker, who has been driving sexual health innovation in Germany. So make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you do have a moment to rate and review us, it really does help other people to find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under StixSTI. That's StixSTIXSTI. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Sticks and Stones is produced by Birdline Media.